There was light, beautiful angle lifting light, grass and ground. I looked ahead of me across the field, and I saw a fence. I started moving towards the fence, and I saw a man on the other side of it, moving towards the bit of the field. I wanted to reach him, but I felt myself being drawn back, pushing him irresistibly. As I did, I saw Hello, can you hear me? I'm Ossian Ward, Content Director at Listen Gallery. This is a special edition of the On Air podcast, entitled Voices, and is dedicated to the memory of Susan Hiller, who died earlier this year. Hiller's was a unique voice in contemporary art. Her investigations and revelations of the hidden depths of human imagination found their expression in installation, film, painting, writing, sculpture and photography. To celebrate her life and work, a memorial is being held at Tate Modern in the same week as this podcast is being released, as is a presentation of important early pieces staged in a solo booth at the Freeze Masters Art Fair. In bringing together a group of her friends, colleagues and admirers from all over the art world to discuss her work, interjecting will be Susan herself, recorded at many talks and discussions held over the last few years, the hope is to shed light onto her significance as an artist of major works that similarly managed to distill important truths and enduring questions, often using the voices and impressions of others, especially those not often heard. My thanks go to the full list of contributors who you'll hear from now. Robin Klasnick, founder of Matt's Gallery. Anne Gallagher, director of collections for British Art at Tate. Lynn Tillman, novelist, author and art critic. James Lingwood, the co-director of Art Angel. Psychoanalyst, Darian Leader. Art historian and critic York Heiser, John C. Welchman, Professor of Modern Art History at the University of California, Hans Ulrich Obrist, Artistic Director of the Serpentine Galleries, and finally, the British artist, Mike Nelson. I'm Robin Klasnick. I am the director and founder of MATS, which was founded in 1979 in my own studio in Martellus Street, London Fields E8, and have been running a gallery ever since. Uh, and it's it's just become, it's 40 years this September that we've been going 40 years. Uh, and I've worked with Susan Hiller for 40 years. And I met Susan Hiller when I and Alexis Hunter did a Space Open Studios, uh, which meant 18 studios opening up at the same time for a period of three weeks. And this is probably one of the reasons I started a gallery. Alexis and myself coordinated the show and each, each space studio had a representative and I think Susan Hiller was one of them. And she took apart one of the canvases she'd made. It was a minimal painting. She took these apart strand by strand and at the end of each day, whatever she'd taken apart of the horizontal strands, she'd make into objects. So after seven days, we ended up with seven objects that were placed on the wall and then the show opened up but you could come and actually see her doing it but we must remember that maybe 60 or 70 people over that week would have seen her and our relationship grew from then uh, and that was the first show it's called work in progress and there were also some other paintings that she cut up and made into sort of books called block paintings yeah, Matt's Gallery, you know, is the classic East End site and kind of pioneered the whole idea of alternative art spaces in London in areas of town that at that point weren't really very well known to people in the art world. And <clears throat> Matt's Gallery actually started in Robin Classic's studio, mm. Robin being the artist who runs Matt's Gallery. And I did a show with him, an early show, in his studio, actually. What I was doing was I was taking paintings that I'd made and exhibited, actually, uh, previously, and I was taking them apart thread by thread. Mm. So it was this very meditative, slow undoing of something, um, which actually was extremely enjoyable, and I really liked the, the, the idea because it gave me space to think, and I was thinking about the whole idea of doing and undoing, mm. you know, and what that means. And then at the end... At the end, it was a week, a week's work. At the end of the week, I took all these threads and quickly made sort of what I always call doodles, sort of thread doodles, mm. shapes and things mm. out of the threads so that they went into another kind of existence. Mm -hmm. If I could have been Susan Heller, I would have loved it. 
every work she made I thought was so articulate, so beautiful, both sophisticated and kind of, she was quirky, but she knew what she was doing. And she was, she was just a wonderful artist. We made five shows over those, five seminal shows. Then we made our channels, which in a way I think encapsulated everything Susan ever did in that one monumental flat, again, sat in front. I mean, at times the 104 TVs went off and you just had these different blues. Nothing could be more painterly than, than that and the silence. And then to go from silence to words of people retelling near-death experiences uh, and, and then in different languages... It kind of encapsulated, I think, quite a lot of what she did. I've always said that what I'm interested in is what is kind of invisible in a strange way. I don't mean that it's literally invisible. I just mean that no one pays attention to it, and and therefore they don't really see it, you know. And um, I suppose Channels is the latest one of of those works. Mm con un senso di calore e benessere. Guarda, ma io stesso non ho ancora capito di me un macchino mentre ho detto la sua famiglia si sta sul fatto che devo lever. Après avoir fait quelques pages, je me suis dit que je suis un The subject matter is near-death experiences. And near-death experiences are defined uh, as experiences that people report having had when they are set officially dead, either because they're being resuscitated or they're in a coma and they're flatlining or something of that sort. And sometimes the definitions stretch to be an experience in which you almost died, like you fall off a cliff or you're run over or something like that. And the, there, there are a number of interesting things about that, and I have a lot of voices telling their own experiences, the interesting thing is that, in theory, you shouldn't have any experiences after you're declared dead, Mm. or even dead for two minutes, because the brain is dead. And there's always been this idea in our society that consciousness is generated by the brain. The, The debate in science over these experiences is, well... What happens when the brain is dead? Where, where, where are these thoughts and images coming from? Mm. Even if it's a dream or a delusion mm. or a fantasy, there's still a report that something happened mm. mentally mm. while this person was supposedly dead. Well, we either have to change our definition of dead, which could be very interesting, or, mm. or we have to think, as some scientists have suggested, that the brain is like a television set, and I love the fact that they use television as an analogy, which is why I've used television sets in this Uh piece. The brain is like a television set. It receives and filters out some things and perceives others. Well, this is a radical notion of what the human being is, and I just, I think it's fascinating, that's all. So that's the basis of this piece, is my interest in that. I've constructed the piece with a lot of old television sets, 104, actually. And why have I used old television sets? Well, because in a way the piece is an analog piece. It's, 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 it's showing a kind of um, ratio of noise and information, and that's an analog idea. Mm. But the other thing is the reality of these older television sets is that they're wonderful... Bodies, they have bulk, they have dimension, whereas mm. the new flat screens are just a screen, just a surface. Mm. And because they have bodies, they seem to to utter the human voices in, in kind of a, a way that makes sense as, as a metaphor or, mm. or an analogy. It was many months after the experience before I processed the fear and was able to remember the beauty I did not see a light, but I did enter a space, after the ego had let go, where I knew everything, where I was part of everything, where I could see and intuit why all was as it was. It was a feeling of such intensity and beauty that words are but empty shells. The supreme being, energy, life, 
defies the constraints of mortal terms. I've talked to people who've lost loved ones and have recounted my experience. I believe that all-knowing awaits us all, and as such, death is not a fearful place. When we were making channels, we found one TV, because we had to test every analog TV to see whether we could actually make it work as a monitor. And one of them started... Now, I can't tell you what it said, but one of them started to have words appear on it. And so we removed it. It's obviously some... We didn't know how these words, ghostly, had come onto them. And we recorded it, and it was full of beautiful... Susan's work is full of colours on that. And then she started editing it and sending it to me and making it into a film and wanting... And... We hadn't ever, ever ever really finished it. Well, she was doing it and she kept showing it to me and I was trying to really, in a way, stay out of it because it was, it was both beautiful, but, you know, what was it? And then we said to go to make a show here and then she passed away. And so, and this show that we were making in September was originally meant to happen last February. And as you know, she died on the 28th of January this year, like Susan, I will never forget that. My 72nd birthday, on my birthday. How she managed to die on my birthday, I don't know. And, yeah, I actually quite know quite a lot of people born on the 28th of January. Marcel Broadhurst was, and he died on the same day as well, apparently. Um, Anne Gallagher, director of British Collections at Tate... I don't actually remember the first time I encountered Susan. It was like she was always around. But the first time I worked with her was when I nominated her for the 2000 British representation at the Havana Binali. And we kept in touch. And then obviously worked again on her 2011 exhibition, her um, survey show... Tate Britain shouldn't want it called a retrospective um, I don't think anybody wants their work called a retrospective while they're still alive and remained friends ever since we would have needed an absolutely massive space to do Susan's entire career justice so obviously we did have to edit and that was um, that was the biggest conundrum because we were clear right from the beginning that we wanted to start early and show important works that people weren't really aware of. Um, the cut-up canvas books and the ash pieces and the dream mapping, all those kind of things were really kind of important to draw attention to. Um, and then it was also important to have new work because what she was working on at the time, the auras in particular, people were incredibly interested in. But there was this mass of highly um, either known or really significant pieces in between, a lot of which were very space-hungry. So it was hard to edit. You could say it sort of sits oddly in the sort of the rationality of an art museum to be um, devoting an entire exhibition, which includes so many works that focus on the otherworldly and the obscure and totally irrational concepts. Um, but they were so rooted in everyday life that they had this real appeal to people, I think. And what she did really was, was to collect things and to arrange them so that the critical mass made them more than some of the parts. So, in a sense, I think my practice has probably moved away from anything that you would call purely conceptual, if indeed it ever was conceptual, and more toward an engagement with materials. And I think that actually is how I would talk about my own work as a materials-based practice. The thing is, though, that my materials are always cultural artifacts, so they might well be something like a text, um, which brings it into the area of conceptualism. The Tate London show was certainly quite late in her career, but I think she recognised she'd had a good 
relationship all the way through with Tate. Just, you know, work had been acquired gradually, and she's she's well represented. But you know, the things she got angry about were things that were entirely valid about the way women artists were treated in comparison to men, um, and were often left unspoken and just accepted. She talked a lot about the, the history of the avant-garde and how a lot of men would not have had a woman in their midst. They were completely excluded from groups. And I think she talked a lot about how early handheld cameras, video cameras, were incredibly useful because you didn't have to hire expensive equipment um, as part of a sort of group of artists who were working in film and video, you could do it on your own. And that made it easier for, for women to just get on with it. And and she's right. There, you know, there's still um, a lack of equality and there is still a lack of respect for women artists in the marketplace. There's no comparison. And the, the number of women artists who command major shows and high prices is still relatively few. But it was that sort of consistent arguing in you know, those debates. She was extremely good in taking part in, incredibly articulate and totally respected. And she was incredibly generous. I, I can't um, remember how many artists over the years who were taught by her who um, remember the generosity in encouraging them, making the difference between they whether they carried on being an artist or not, even if it was an encounter as a, an external examiner rather than someone who had regular contact. And she liked having conversations with people. She was interested in people, interested in issues, and, yeah, was interested in the world beyond her own art. And that's what made her art so, um, yeah, appealing and intellectually challenging because it was about the world and its oddness. And her curiosity was what people sort of picked up on and responded to, I think. I'm Lynn Tillman, and when I lived in London... I, uh, we got to know each other very well. And she was older, and I thought of her as much older, and she wasn't, because she was married and had an apartment and was settled, and I was just, you know, you know, running around. I was <laughs> crazy wild. And she was so supportive of my nascent writing, and my, uh, my, me as an artist overall. And the conversations that we had were formative for me and continued to be over the years. We never lost touch with each other, even when I went back to New York after I'd lived in Europe a long time. Well, I think she was a conceptual artist. And by paraconceptual, I think, again, that would be against the grain of the ordinary idea of conceptualism, which was still very much grounded in rationality. Mm -hmm. She was very interested in para, that thing that was parallel to a discipline. Uh, she, she was investigating... Her form of conceptualism was to investigate what was not necessarily fitting into those categories, but went along with it. I think her work was really not well understood here, especially, where people are very literal-minded. And I, I, I can't say that I know exactly how the English accepted her or the Germans or the French, but she was better known there. I do know that 
I had to explain to somebody here that it wasn't that she believed everything that she represented in her work, but she believed in the people who did. And I think that's a very important distinction. She didn't rule out other ideas that seemed so odd to most of us. And that was part of her brilliance, and that's part of what I learned. Not to think that what I was thinking was so certain. In the 70s, I thought I had invented this word, paraconceptual, um, in a talk I was giving at a venue called the Women's Free Art Alliance in London, which was in the early days of sort of, I wouldn't say first generation, okay, feminist activity in the art world in the UK. And uh, I was really talking about the way that we are both victims and beneficiaries of our culture and particularly in terms of language and how difficult it was for me um, sort of emerging as an artist in the period of the conceptual movement, which in the UK was dominated by the language school of conceptualism, work which I very much respected but seemed to me to be dealing with that which was already in language and I felt this was an impossibility for me. And so I made a resolution to go outside that, and that's where the idea of paraconceptual came in. The work would be conceptual, but it would have this other element to it. And so I began to um, work entirely with ideas that were already present in the culture, but were ridiculed, neglected, misunderstood, but my approach isn't about the paranormal, it's about the paraconceptual. Recently I was asked by Aperture for its issue that's going to be guest edited by Wolfgang Tillmans uh, on photography and, and spirituality to write about some of Susan's works from Rough Seas and so I'll, I'll just read a little bit. Rough seas represent the inevitability also of random occurrences at their most extreme. Waves may hypnotize with calm and steady movements, but suddenly they turn into monsters. The sea, awakened and aroused, is transformed and attacks mercilessly. Its own hidden world is as unknowable as the unconscious. Rough seas is Eros, but also Thanatos, and in these images, love and death fuse. But Thanatos's deadly mission is checked, fate denied, but not obliterated. Susan Hiller focused her exceptional, beautiful mind and mind's eye on the undocumentable, unknowable, unbelievable, incredible, unfamiliar, uncanny, only begins to describe her unique body of great art. She doubted the ways in which people were trained to think and see, the categories by which people understood and interpreted the world. She let the implausible surface and believed in the truths of others' visions. What might not be actual or visible might still be true. Over against certainty and category, Susan Hiller recognized and advocated for the power of the imagination. So her loss to me is also unfathomable because I never expected, one never does, that you won't continue to talk with someone who is so important to you. Her mind was so unusual, and she thought for herself in ways that were strikingly different from other people. She really thought, and she really debunked a lot of notions, and she went against the grain of 20th and 21st century certainties. She was so unusual 
And she would also say when we were laughing that she was just a Florida girl. (laughs) Once on a trip to a place that I had asked my partner to go to with me because I thought it had a beautiful name and the name was Weston Supermare, which I thought was an extraordinary name. I found these postcards um, in a sweet shop and what fascinated me, now you have to remember this was very early 70s, um, when the linguistic turn was a major theme in art practice and I noticed these postcards, they all said rough sea and the image and the caption always came together. So this is where the issue of representation comes in. So I became fascinated with them. Then on a trip to Brighton, I found some other ones. They also said rough sea. So I began to collect them. And and I noticed many things. And in an earlier work of mine called Dedicated to the Unknown Artists, I carefully tabulated and annotated many of the themes and issues that I found in these very simple postcards. The first thing to notice about them, of course, is that they are little bits of the sublime. They're little, they're tiny end bits of the whole tradition of the sublime in art. James Lingwood, um, co-director of Art Angel, and um, I think I've worked with Susan over three decades. Um, First, when I was a young curator at the ICA, and there was an exhibition of, of ICA in London. There was an exhibition of, of her recent work there. And then through the 1990s, um, we talked about commissioning you know, a new site-specific work, um, which finally uh, emerged as the uh, installation Witness, which in fact first opened in a, in a chapel in London in 2001. Um, and then Susan kindly asked me to work with her on a survey exhibition, which we called Recall, um, which um, was in a number of different spaces in Europe um, in the 2000s. And then lastly, actually four decades, um, she um, very kindly um, donated, um, I think probably we could say one of her last major works, if not her last major work called London Jukebox, a collection of of songs by musicians written about London, um, which she made uh, last year in 2018. There were were major projects throughout Susan's career. I mean, one thinks of of a sequence of installations, um, including, uh, you know, Rough Seas or Unknown Artists, um, after the Freud Museum, and Witness, all of which I think um, show two kind of key aspects of Susan's way of working. One, that she was, uh, you know, she was an incredible, uh, incredibly inquisitive researcher, and she found... um, objects, artefacts, stories, and was always asking what lay beneath those stories. And those, I think she was always interested in them both being individual human stories, but also ones which were much broader cultural stories. So that's one aspect. <clears throat> the other with, which I think really distinguishes her as an artist, that she was always, you know... For, you know, worked extremely hard to find a very singular form for uh, each individual project. So they don't really just inhabit the form that she had done again and again. So um, in the case of Witness, which were, was based on uh, witness statements from uh, people all over the world, hundreds of them, who had seen strange lights or sightings or visitations or UFOs, um, and she gathered with uh, a group of researchers, um, friends, colleagues, connections, you know, hundreds of statements. And then she had to find a form for um, these, um, these short descriptions um, in many, many different languages. And she came up with a form which actually in a way was based on a very small speaker unit, um, which, which kind of weirdly looked a little bit like a cliched UFO sort of form and um, then made a kind of a huge cluster one must say a sort of forest of them which kind of um, had a sort of almost like a spectral glowing presence in a darkened space 
into which you entered. So you entered into this, this one might now say, we said a forest then, now you'd probably say a kind of cloud, <laughs> of a cloud of, of stories, um, which you, you, again, you listen to both individually, so you listen to the individual stories by sort of cupping a uh, speaker to your ear, but then you also listen to the whole babel of voices. On Saturday, May the 21st, 1977, I was with my boyfriend, Cliff Roll. We'd parked our car on a quiet road near Parley Cross when a beam of light struck the back of it. We couldn't see what was causing it, but it scared us a little, so we decided to move on. Back on the main road, we saw what disturbed us. It was a large, silvery, disc-shaped object hovering over a field, A silver-green, cone-shaped beam of light shone down from the centre of it. We stopped to watch and it seemed to stay there for ages. Then it suddenly veered off fast and we dropped off behind some trees, much lower than any plane could go. For some reason we both panicked and drove home shaking. Basically, I think in a lot of my work, I'm interested, as you said, in what's considered to be unimportant or embarrassing or wrong or just plain trivial or kitsch or something like that, starting with the postcards, which are just, after all, just postcards, but they also reveal much deeper cultural themes like the fascination that people have with the wildness of nature, etc., etc. So the works that I've done that use people talking about their, um, in particular piece, experiences of seeing unexplained phenomena in the sky. Um, And people always, journalists say, oh, it's all about being, you know, kidnapped by aliens. I've never, ever uh, used any material like that. It's very interesting what projections people bring to the work and how they talk about something I've never, ever worked with. So I am interested in what I call contemporary visionary experience because those people who are talking about these things that they've seen um, are trying hard to find a way to talk about something which occurs not exactly in a dreamlike state but in a situation that they can't pin down very well in language liminality, whatever you want to call it. And there's such an ancient and universal tradition of people seeing things, quite often phenomena of light, Mm -hmm. that the continuity between what at one time would have been described as a religious visionary experience and now is relegated to this idea of aliens or UFOs or something, that absolutely fascinates me. And so... That combined with my interest in the human voice and how when people are talking to us or telling a story, it tends to trigger off our own visualization. Somebody describes something to us and we begin to almost see it. And the fact that so much more information, if you like, comes through the voice other than the words. It went straight over the top of us and that's when it started getting a bit scary. It went over, then it swayed backwards and forwards just over the top of us. did that two or three times. It was like a big, incredibly bright, white light. And then it came down parallel with the car and level with my eyes. It kept pace with us. It went in and out of trees. It went over hedges. It disappeared around the backs of houses. It certainly wasn't the moon, or a balloon, or a plane. It kept pace with us for about six miles. I was arguing with my boyfriend. He just kept his hands on the wheel and refused to look at it. He said over and over, whatever it is, it will go away eventually. Yeah, I mean, I think she, she did alight on, on stories or, or objects which you know, were in themselves very compelling or sort of curious. And, you know, the story... I mean, it wasn't like Susan particularly believed in what these people believed in, but she was fascinated mm. by what they were believing in um, and uh, fascinated by what she called the social facts of what might be considered fictions of, of different kinds. And she found a way, and in the same way that she was drawing, she was drawn in to this 
these stories, this material, she found a way of drawing the the, the, the viewer or the, the listener in. So, again, I mean, I think many of her, her great installations do combine this kind of sense of, of intimacy, you know, really going into the work. And, you know, you really go into the, the, the postcards of all these rough seas. And you really went into the stories in Witness. People are always saying to me, well, do you believe in ESP? Do you believe in auras? As though belief somehow was something they needed to be reassured about. And I'm, my point is that all these ideas are social facts. And we might as well look the facts straight on. You know, for example, Psy Girls deals with a sort of obsession um, with the special powers of some human beings, in this case of girls. Now that's a social fact. And it isn't a question of starting a conversation about whether these kinds of manifestations of telekinesis, which is what this is about, moving things at a distance, is that true or not? I mean, obviously it's special effects, right? But there is a history of belief which kind of gets exaggerated because it's represented so literally in media. So that sort of thing interests me tremendously. And as I think I've said a couple of times, it's sort of odd that people always want to know about my belief. And my response to that is, well, is that really where you locate art? I mean, if somebody paints a saint, does that mean he's a very strong Catholic? I'm Darian Leader. I'm a psychoanalyst working in London. I knew Susan for a long time. We first met probably just before 2000 in the late 1990s when she was doing some work at the Freud Museum. We went on to work together a number of times. She participated in the show at the Freud Museum we did in 2001. The J Street Project was the subject of a lot of discussions um, in the early um, noughties. And then um, we would meet over the years for lunch. Um, Unlike many artists who have an interest in psychoanalysis, Susan's approach was always different because she came to it with a critical spirit. She never accepted wholesale doctrines of psychoanalysis. Obviously, she recognised the facts of the unconscious, sexuality, violence in human beings and so on. But she wasn't a believer. She always questioned, thought about psychoanalytic concepts. And over lunches, over the years, she would often talk in a way that made me try to rethink psychoanalytic concepts. She'd ask questions, she'd make criticisms. She didn't swallow psychoanalysis wholesale, but she made you rethink and inquire about its concepts. In a way, this was very similar to a wonderful work by Susan called Inquiry, Inquiry, where she juxtaposed American and British encyclopedia entries that focused on what seemed to be the same or similar questions, such as what causes twilight? What is the origin of the human handshake? And she'd always find that there were remarkable differences in the presentation of what one might have expected to be the same facts. And her approach to psychoanalysis was exactly that, that she always knew that there were different ways to look at things. And she was very interested in teasing out the presuppositions that came with psychoanalytic theory. So I think there's a great contrast between her approach to psychoanalysis and that of other artists, or some artists, who kind of swallow some psychoanalytic ideas, hook, line and sinker. With Susan, there was always this critical spirit. Some people link that critical spirit to her training in anthropology, but I think it probably goes way, way further back than that. This is where my anthropology comes in. When I first came to England, one of my favorite, favorite places was the British Museum, the old British Museum. And I used to love, as everybody did, until it was taken away and changed, their fantastic old Victorian display cupboards where they would have a jumble of something, 
um, let's say it was ethnographic art, a jumble of African masks, and then there would be drawers underneath that you could pull out where there would be more of these and more of these and more of these. It was just fantastic. Well, I think the French started it, and then the Americans picked up on it, and then it came to this country. No, now that approach is not going to govern our displays anymore. We're going to pick the most beautiful African mask, and we will have this African mask displayed as art, and all the rest of them go someplace else where you'll never see them again. Well, of course, the hubris, the arrogance of that is unbelievable because we don't know what the most beautiful African mask is. We only know what we think the most beautiful African mask is. And unless that distinction is going to be made very, very clearly, this is really a strange thing to do. And it might be the same, let's say, with medieval sculpture. I mean, we think this is the best wooden Madonna. Well, it might be interesting to say, but in the Middle Ages, they valued this one better. I mean, if we had some discussion of there being different ways of judging, um, I, would, I could get very excited about that. But just for us always at, in the beginning of this century to think that our judgment on things is the way it is seems to me to be wrong, narrow-minded. Susan's work, again, unlike many other conceptual artists of her generation and since, was never didactic. You never left a show, an installation by Susan with the idea, this is what that meant, but you were troubled, it was thought-provoking, you felt involved in a bodily experience, particularly through sound, the way that she made sound actually affect the body. And Susan spoke more than once of what she called the tyranny of the visual, and she explained that part of what she was trying to do with her art was to go beyond this tyranny of the visual to move into a dimension of sound. Even the remarkable installation Witness had a title which seemed to evoke precisely vision, what we witness, but in fact what it was, aside from the, the extraordinary visual aspect of the installation, it was like something out of Avatar, was sound. You were listening, you were plugged in to these voices coming from the past, talking about experiences in this strange border between what's real, what can't be accounted for, belief, disbelief, the supernatural, the paranormal. Hi, I'm Jörg Heiser. I'm a teacher at the University for the Arts in Berlin. Um, I used to be an editor at Freeze Magazine and I still write for the magazine. And uh, Susan Hiller's work uh, has been extremely important for myself. And Susan Hiller is a person as well. J Street is maybe one of the most important for me, especially, but also for others, because it's, it's a different, I mean, it's obviously dealing with Germany, with the history of anti-Semitism, with the history of Jewish culture uh, and Jewish people in Europe and especially in Germany. And it's, it's addressing this in a very current way because as you know, she and her husband drove all around Germany, Austria, and um, basically made not only images, but also video recordings of streets named Judenstraße or Jüdische Straße, Jewish street um, all over Germany. And doing so, they caught glimpses of contemporary everyday culture uh, in Germany. And the sort of, let's say, banality of these streets, but at the same time, their index, indexical significance for this history, which was present, but also to some extent repressed or forgotten or both. And um, to me, that was a radical work in the sense that it created uh, the possibility of thinking of another way to commemorate, not only in terms of big uh, granite blocks or minimalist um, bronzes or, or um, structures, but 
um, conceptual as well as everyday work, creating a, an indexical map um, that as a whole kind of functions as a memorial and creates a sort of living memorial, which I felt was um, a piece that um, would at some point uh, deserve being installed somewhere in Berlin or elsewhere permanently. I was invited on an artist fellowship to Berlin on a program that's been going since the uh, 50s, I think, when Berlin was a divided city and was very isolated, and they had this policy of inviting artists from other countries to come to keep people there in touch with what was happening culturally outside of uh, Germany. And so I had really not been in Berlin before, and I'd only been in Germany very, very briefly, and I was walking around the city one day, uh, you know, with a map in one hand and looking for where I was, and I looked up, and the corner of the street I was standing on was called Judenstrasse, which means Jews Street. And I was completely sort of taken aback by that. I, I was uh, surprised, to say the least, and sort of shocked and a bit confused about what this meant, this sign talking about this, these people that had been exterminated, basically, why was there this street sign in Germany? And what did it mean? And it got me sort of wondering and thinking and so forth. And I went back home and looked in the, uh, we decided there's not a name for this. In Europe, most big cities have a list of, they have a book which is a list of every street. So you can look up the street and then you can go to a map and find it. So I looked in this uh, book for Berlin and I discovered there were several other Judenstrasses in Berlin, not just this one, but others as well. And uh, that led to even more questions. And um, then after that, I decided I had to do some kind of work around this. And I think that one of my obsessions with these street signs is that they, they are ghosts. They're there, they're perfectly visible, but nobody sees them. And this is true of street signs everywhere, but in this case, possibly more so. So it's on the one hand, an unconscious memorial. Nobody intended to leave these traces of memory, but they're there. And I wanted to make a work that was uh, a sort of commemoration of an absence, but that was done in a very cool sort of minimal way to leave the emotional response up to the viewer to construct from their own personal uh, memory, if you like. Uh, I'm John Welchman, and I'm a professor of art history at the University of California. One of the things that really interested me from the beginning, and especially when I went back to Susan's work, um, you know, roughly a, a decade ago, um, was her extraordinary negotiation with a range of what I want to call big questions. I mean, she looked at, you know, popular practices of violence and issues around the erasure and remainders of Jewish history in Germany in the project you just mentioned, J Street Project. She's investigated in different dimensions questions about truth and ethics. Um, she's had, I think, a very fruitful dialogue and negotiation with feminism and the women's movement. We talked just now about her engagement with psychological and parapsychological phenomena, but she's also engaged with popular visual culture, with memory and counter-memory, with questions around the production of history, um, and then also in her writings and lectures, uh, but, but in her work as well, with what I would call the operating conditions of writing and speech 
touching on humor and irony. So it's a, it's a huge range of, of inquiries, and I, I find the scope and the ambition of that um, to be very refreshing um, in, in relationship to a kind of parallel development in the art world where while artists often took on um, a, a big issue or a small cluster of big issues, they did so in increasingly focused ways, both materially and conceptually. And I think the J Street project is um, uh, is the perfect example of one of these, you know, huge, almost impossible to conceive big question um, projects. And I remember when I was thinking through some questions about it, the first thing I, I wanted to do was to put what she did in the context of the much more monumental interventions around um, these, you know, in quotes, memorial questions. Um, you know, and I'm, I was thinking of, of Liebskin's Jewish Museum in Berlin or Peter Eisenman's Holocaust Memorial or perhaps even Rachel Whiteread's um, Judenplatz Memorial in Vienna, which finally um, opened in 2000. All of those things were ambitious, expensive, expansive, concentrated in the seats of power. And Susan's work, the J Street Project work, um, struck me because it deployed casual modes of everyday representation and it retrieved and reordered language charged images that's the signposts all over germany that she um uh, photographed and and then reproduced um and and the fact here was that they were dispersed throughout germany in villages in towns and in cities just like most of the formula po former population if you like whose whose absence the project addresses. So it's this idea of dispersal and engagement with the community across its reaches within a territory that I found very striking. But she, you know, Susan never aligns her work or, or, or weighs it down with what I, I remember I described as outcome-oriented forms of deconstruction, right, or critique. And what she does instead is... is orchestrate in multiples, right? The array of street signage, the grid of postcards, the many witnesses in the, in the project called Witness. And these offer, in the end, some kind of choral commentary that's realized through sets and groups of aesthetically recontextualized appropriations. So she works in the space between the part and the whole, between details and contexts. And this is how I think she's able through organizing these relationships to move from smaller to larger questions, as with the street signs, or from observations and experiences across to ideas and propositions. And that's, I think, what's centrally exciting to me in um, her work, if we look at it as a big picture. What else would artists be doing but collecting, classifying, codifying, analyzing, and producing a, conden a condensation or a symbolization of a cultural artifact of some kind. But you see, I started off as a painter. I love painting. And um, the canvas, the, the boundary, the, the brush, the, these are all artifacts that you're working with, aren't they? I mean, you know, where, where does it end, this, this thing? So I know that somebody once accused me of, of, of still thinking like an anthropologist. This was in the 70s when, again, that was not a fashionable thing to do. Uh, because they said that the way I talked about art was so demystifying. But I don't think that art can be demystified. And I certainly don't fe feel that I'm doing anything prosaic when I'm making a work. And I don't think any artist feels they're engaged in anything like a demystification because even when they are doing a work that is supposedly a demystification, it is also a mystification at the same time. That's the nature of working within a social and cultural context, which is what all artists do. My name is Hans-Rich Obrist. I'm the artistic director of the Serpentine Galleries. It's uh, the sixth day of the ninth month of the uh, 19th year of the second decade of the first century of the third millennium. We're here in Kensington Gardens at the Serpentine remembering the amazing Susan Hiller. And uh, actually walking through the park this morning, I remembered my first really longer conversation with Susan was 
in 2006. It's when I moved to London and joined the Serpentine. And one of the first things we, we did here was my interview marathon with Rem Kohlhaas. And Rem and I interviewed many Londoners. The idea was to make a kind of a portrait of the of the city. We made approximately 70 interviews. It was um, uh, to make a portrait of the city of London at that time. And um, Susan was one of the first artists we contacted. And it was this 24-hour event in the pavilion of Rem Kohlhaas and uh, non-stop. And it was at 9 p.m. that... Uh, Susan appeared and actually there was some kind of um, issue with the electricity temporarily. So the pavilion was all of a sudden somehow, because we were a bit delayed. So it was, I think the interview was rather around 9.30, 9.40. So it started to be, you know, not dark, but not fully lit. And I would always remember that during the interview with Susan, I used cell phone uh, as a torch in order to kind of read the questions. and we, you know, discussed with her London and she said that one can never really become English, but you can become a Londoner. And she affirmed that she was a Londoner because, of course, having lived here since the 60s. And in a way, London was for her the only place to go if you were an artist and didn't have any money. And uh, uh, of course, that was the case then. And uh, she realized this incredible, exciting moment when everything came together, I think, fashion, design, theory, literature, poetry. There wasn't really a separation between the people participating in those kinds of activities. And that was wonderful. And I think that's what she continued throughout her life. I think the amazing thing about Susan Hill's practice, why we can learn from it for today and why it's a toolbox is that, you know, it always went beyond the fear of pooling knowledge. She brought together never made a separation and would also use the most unexpected sources. So it's not only a bringing together of people, but it's also bringing together of very unexpected sources. It could be postcards, it could be automatic writing, it could be UFO sightings, it could be horror movies, it could be narratives. Um, uh, and of course, dreams, dreams, always dreams and always archives. And I think in a way, we've been in an age where we have more and more information and uh, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily an age of memory. It's it's maybe amnesia is very much at the core of this digital age. I mean, Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web in 1989. Information has exploded ever since, but maybe amnesia is somewhere at the core of the digital age. And I think it's interesting that the protest against forgetting that memory has always been part of um, Susan Hiller's work. And uh, I think, again, that makes it very relevant now. And, so I really think about Susan Hiller all the time. I also quote her in every lecture um, I do um, because of this um, extinction experience. Because as I said, you know, the, the, the Rem Colas project, the marathon was just the beginning. We then had many collaborations and um, it sort of peaked in 2014, which for me was the most um, urgent and maybe important collaboration we had because in a way... Extinction is, of course, at the forefront of the discussions now. Elizabeth Colbert wrote about the sixth mass extinction. It's not only the extinction of species, it's also the extinction of cultural phenomena. And to actually one of the fastest disappearances ever of languages. Every day we lose languages. And so we showed the extraordinary film of Susan Hiller uh, about that, the film where she basically shows us what we lose. It's a film about loss. It's about the languages uh, we use uh, every day. And it was a very emotional moment to show that film and uh, in a way with her protest against extinction. And I I mentioned that in almost every talk because, you know, Gustav said we're not done in 2014. Sotrel. Sotrel. Tri. Tri. Vuzot. Courtisé. Habillé. Boule de toc-toc. Radbois. Radbois. Estropié. Gobelet. Choc. Choc. Ravard. Ravard. Fluxion. Halé. Susfleur. Susfleur. Prendre la galerie. Uh, I think all art is political, and I think any position that an artist takes on any subject has a politic involved in it. And obviously, I do have very strong feelings about the use of other peoples as anthropological subject matter. So that's possibly something that I'm dealing with. But the way I, there was a kind of political anger uh, 
when I started that last silent movie because, you see, what happens is anthropologists or linguists go and record and study these wonderful languages because every time we lose a language, we lose a whole worldview, a picture of the universe that's different than the picture our language provides. So we lose an incredible amount of knowledge when we lose a language. But then they bring their um, tapes or whatever back to their university and uh, that's it. Nobody is allowed into those archives for some reason that I've never understood. Um, so I got angry about that. And I had help from uh, someone who helped me get these stories. And I've, you know, I've attributed the sources as, as much as possible. So it's all there, you can see it for yourself. But I've never understood the kind of way that the stuff that's brought back is only supposed to be of interest to specialists. One of the uh, most interesting languages and one of the most interesting speakers, in my opinion, is the man that I have opened the piece, who speaks one of those fabulous um, click languages of the Bantu people in South Africa. And uh, he um, was asked in 1937 to, he was asked by an anthropologist in South Africa in 1937 to uh, record a speech so that anthropologists in a linguistic conference back in, I think it was in Belgium, could hear his language. Well, he takes this opportunity very cannily to make a very political speech about what's happening in South Africa to his people who are being killed, and also to make a very gentle speech. He does the two things at the same time without anger. He says, well, he, he says basically, you're interested in my language, I'm interested in your language, I don't speak your language, you don't speak my language. In other words, he's trying to make a mutuality out of a situation in which he's not being seen as an equal at all. Okay, so this is a very wonderful piece of recording. It was recorded on a wax cylinder. It was perhaps played at the conference, I don't know, there's no record of that. But it ended up in a cupboard in a university library where it has been since 1937. And it was only discovered a couple of years ago when they were renovating the anthropology department in this university and they were tearing down these old wooden cupboards and they found this wax cylinder. Well, what is the point, you know, of doing all this work and not sharing it? Why does it go into a cupboard like that? Which is exactly what happens. Hello, I'm, uh, my name is Mike Nelson. I'm a, an artist who shared with Susan and Nero uh, as a friend. I think there was a certain level of like protection to the work, but also to herself. And perhaps she wanted to retain a certain level of privacy in, in some ways. And that's something that kind of came to me when I met her more socially later on, you know, but through you know, mutual friends, we, you know, Richard and Susie, we'd, we'd have, have dinner often and I'd see very much the family person, the kind of, a, you know, the mother, the wife, the human as opposed to the, the artist, which is a strange definition to make ultimately, but uh, it's a, I, I suppose it's a definition that refers very much to the idea of art and the art world. There's two different sort of like realms and uh, they have to cross over occasionally, but they're different things ultimately. Mm. So in that respect, she always stood as a, an artist that was inspirational in some ways because she suggested a sort of a tract that was kind of had its uh, methodologies but there was a strange sort of um, uh, logic to it but also sort of it allowed a certain freedom I think which had perhaps the work taken its logical course in terms of its kind of consumption by the, the greater being the art world she would have lost but at the same time, that kind of rankled with her as well, I think. So you could see the contrariness of it. And I think that draws attention to what I think is the way that artists operate in culture, which is to, on the one hand, prop up 
certain uh, assumptions of their society and on, on the other side to provide a space where a critical discussion of those assumptions can take place. The two things happen simultaneously and unselfconsciously usually too in the work of many artists. So this kind of thing makes me a little optimistic about the function of art. I don't think art is a, is a, is a decorative or um, or frivolous activity. I think it's an essential way that society examines itself. You have to believe to some degree to make work about belief. Otherwise it becomes kind of like cynical and exploitative. And certainly in, in, in Susan's work, you felt there was somebody there that she understood the absurdity of the position, but at the same time, she also sort of felt the possibility of, of what she was listening to or kind of utilising. I'm always aware that when somebody dies, a close, you know, when a close friend died, that when I met in the wake, in the funeral after, and you hear the stories of the different per, of the person from the different perspectives, then the person starts to live on, or, or a new person, a Frankenstein, starts to be built. And it seems kind of really kind of, I think she might find it darkly humorous that we're creating this kind of monster in the vein of Mary Shelley's kind of like a, uh, uh, which in many ways is a pretty good reference point for her, you know, in, in these stories of, of memories. How do you put it all together? And that's this, the function of art, this epistemological thing, like what is reality, what is real? That's what artists are really always about, systems of representation. We've gone to the point now where um, it's almost become a, a job of artists to explain the world. In, and again, a very ancient kind of tradition. You know, how, what is the world like? And how did it come to be like this? 